Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. I'm Bill Yates, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal, and today we are discussing a recently accepted rapid report manuscript entitled Local and Global Contributions to Hemodynamic Activity in Mouse Cortex. Before we begin, let's have our guests introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Onirutha Das. I teach at the Department of Neuroscience at Columbia University in New York. And I've been working in uh, visual neurobiology, but also in understanding brain mechanisms of functional brain imaging, such as exactly the sort of uh, brain imaging that we'll be talking about in this podcast today. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm Matteo Carandini. I'm at University College London, and I'm the senior author on this paper. Um, our research focuses on the activity of large neuronal populations in the cerebral cortex, and among the various methods we used are the optical methods that are the subject of this study. Hi, uh, I am Andrea Pisauro. I am a postdoc at the Institute of Neuroscience and Psychology in Glasgow University. I am currently studying decision-making in humans in the laboratory of Marius Filiacidis, but uh, the work uh, that we describe today has been done in the lab of Matteo during my PhD in the last few years in awake mice. Thank you. This is a very interesting study that gives insights into how functional imaging and other optical imaging techniques work. Yeah, I, I agree, Bill. This paper has really important implications for the interpretation of bold fMRI, that is, uh, blood oxygen level dependent functional magnetic resonance imaging. You know, it's the, as I'm sure all the listeners know, uh, this is one of the most heavily used techniques for studying brain activity in humans. But uh, surprisingly, almost shockingly, we as a community still have huge gaps in our understanding of what fMRI bold measurements really mean. So, so let's start with a question to Andrea. Could you give us a little background about fMRI? Uh, so, as you just said, the bold contrast is the most popular signal used to assess neural activity in humans, and yet it does not actually measure neural activity. Uh, rather, fMRI uses a combination of magnetic fields to measure local changes in blood oxygen level and it takes advantage of the different magnetic properties of oxygenated and deoxygenated blood. So therefore, fMRI experiments actually measure changes in hemodynamic activity to estimate changes in neural activity. And this estimation is based on the observation, which is well known from more than 100 years ago, that increases in neural activity in a certain part of the brain are coupled shortly afterward with increases in hemodynamic activity. And uh, this uh, neurovascular coupling is an extremely reliable mechanism and we can safely assume that every time neurons in a brain region increase their activity, this will be followed by a local increase in blood flow. And it is this assumption that has led to the diffusion of fMRI in the early 90s, and uh, through extensive testing over the last two decades, the forward interpretation that neural activity causes hemodynamic activity stood up very well. And for instance, uh, if we show visual stimulation with increasing contrast, this will increase activity in visual cortex, and it will also increase both the fMRI response in a manner that makes good quantitative sense. So in that case, where are the major issues in the interpretation of fMRI? Uh, so most fMRI studies take for granted that increased blood flow means there must have been an increase in neural activity. Uh, however, this reverse assumption has not been tested as extensively as the forward assumption. And particularly in alert subjects, there are many features or components of the bold fMRI that cannot be related to the stimulus. And therefore, we can't tell whether or how they originate from local increase in neural activity. Uh, in early fMRI studies, these components have been treated as noise and were removed from the analysis. More recently, there is growing sense that those other components also carry meaningful information. 
However, the role and the mechanisms through which they arise are still uh, not very well understood. And in our study, we distinguished and characterized a global component of the hemodynamic activity, which seems to be independent of the stimulus. So, Andrea, you find that the net imaging response that you measure can be cleanly separated into a linear sum of this, what you call the global component, which is interestingly behaviorally relevant, and of course the local neural activity, uh, another component that's presumably driven by local neural activity. So we'll come back in a minute to describing your findings in more detail, but first uh, set it up for us. What was your experimental approach? So we use a technique called the optical imaging of intrinsic signal, uh, which measure hemodynamic activity, and we did that in the mouse visual cortex. And this simple imaging technique is based on the fact that when you shine a beam of light on a living brain, blood is the strongest absorber. And the amount of light which is reflected by the cortex, uh, which can be measured with a camera, basically depends by how much light has been absorbed by the blood and allows to measure changes in hemodynamic activity. And very similarly to fMRI, oxygenating and deoxygenating blood has different optical properties, which depend on the wavelength of the beam. And we chose to illuminate the cortex with a beam of green light, which is equally absorbed by oxygenated and deoxygenated blood, and therefore provide a measure of local blood volume variations. And it has been shown, I believe also by Professor Das, that the increase in blood volume in response to neural simulation are actually highly oxygenated. And therefore, intrinsic signal of optical imaging is very similar to the bold signal from fMRI. Uh, it has, however, a greater spatial resolution, which is about one order of magnitude finer than that of the fMRI. In our setup, we show visual stimuli to alert head-fixed mice, which had been implanted with a headpost and a glass window to provide uh, optical access to the cortex. And the window was wide enough to provide access to primary visual cortex and other visual areas and extended medially and frontally for a couple of millimeters. And we know that primary visual cortex has a stable and smooth retinotopic representation of visual space. And to elicit neural responses, we use a standard simulation, which is widely used to reveal this uh, retinotopic organization. And this was a drifting flickering bar, which moved slowly and periodically across the visual field. And the periodic nature of the stimulus induces sinusoidal activation in the neurons. And looking at the phase of the response in the frequency domain, it is possible to retrieve the, the retinotopy preference. Let's turn to, to Matteo Carandini, the senior author on this paper. Could you describe your findings for us, Matteo? Um, yes, so um, as Andrea was saying, we used these optical methods to measure hemodynamic activity. And we found that the activity we measured in visual cortex and around visual cortex could be expressed as a sum of two components, um, a local component and a global component. Uh, the local component is what you think you should, should be there because it reflects presumed um, neural signals driven by the visual stimuli in the appropriate retinotopic region. Um, so you, you show a visual stimulus in one part of the visual field, you get an activation in a part of visual cortex. But uh, the global component, uh, more interestingly, um, constituted large, large fluctuations shared by large cortical regions and they extended beyond visual cortex. And these fluctuations varied from trial to trial. So normally one would consider them to be noise because they're not repeatable as you repeat the stimulus. But we think they're not noise. And in fact, they correlated very clearly with the diameter of the pupil, which suggests that these, um, this global component reflects variations in arousal or alertness. Yeah, so that, that link with pupil dilation is extremely interesting and I mean it's, it's been something, something that's actually been coming up in a lot of uh, recent work from other labs as well. Andrea, what is the significance of that pupil dilation? 
Um, so the PBL is a window on the activity of the brain, and we learned that through two different research streams. And the first was a large body of studies in cognitive psychology in the 60s and the 70s that was showing that pupil dilations correlate not just with arousal, but also with mental effort, task engagement. And the Nobel Prize Kahneman studied extensively this phenomenon. But the second uh, is a more uh, recent work, and these are studies from the last couple of years from several laboratories, uh, particularly uh, McCormick and Jessica Gardin labs at Yale, which have measured pupil dilations while simultaneously recording intracellularly membrane voltage in awake alert mice. And these experiments provided strong evidence that pupil dilation can track cortical state changes. Specifically, transient increases in the diameter of the pupil have been shown to co-vary with the reduction of cortical synchronization and the increase in neuronal excitability and stimulus processing. So we see that pupil dilation correlates both with global cognitive factors and cortical processing. Uh, and where does it, this arise? So we know that when luminance and depth of visual scene are kept constant, pupil diameter have been shown to closely reflect the activity of the locus ceruleus. And this is a small structure in the pons region of the brainstem, which is the only source of uh, norepinephrine into the cortex. And from the locus ceruleus, there is a, a network of uh, projections which reach virtually every cortical region and innervating both neurons and blood vessels. And traditionally, uh, the activity of locus ceruleus was uh, associated with the state of arousal of an animal. But around 10 years ago, there was a, a new uh, theory about its function, which was proposed by, by the group of uh, Professor Aston Jones in Pennsylvania, where they show evidence that in awake monkeys and rats, the uh, LC neurons can adaptively change the gain of neural response in the cortex. So it is quite likely that the signal that we observe could reflect modulation of uh, locus ceruleus activity. However, we uh, don't know what is the relationship between the global hemodynamic signal that we see and the changes in neuronal activity that have been shown in intracellular recordings in awake mice. They are very likely to correlate, even in our studies, even if we don't measure them, but they don't necessarily need to have a causal relationship. So, turning back to Matteo, you know, uh, it'll be interesting to step back a bit, take a broader view, and place this in an even more general context. I know Andrea started with this idea or with the proposal that, uh, or the observation, I should say, that fMRI bold response in humans is... Uh, there's a strong component which is well explained by neural activity, but there's this other global component of attention and various other things. So could you step back and tell us about the significance of your overall findings in terms of these broad issues of the overall fMRI response? Sure. So I think our results fit well with the current literature. And I, and I want to split the current literature in three in a rather arbitrary way, if you want. There are very careful studies of visual function done with fMRI, for example, those by David Heger. And there you will not see much of this global component, because if this global component varies with attention, well, in those studies, they did fantastic efforts to make sure that the subjects maintain constant attention. Uh, therefore, I don't think that in those studies you would see much variations in pupil size and uh, very strong global components. But this is my, this is my suggestion. Uh, then there are studies uh, of global patterns of activity, for example, those by Rafi Malak and others. Um, and there you will see global patterns of activity in the human brain. Um, and they will correlate with uh, pupil dilation, very similar to what we see in the mouse brain. And interestingly, what they find is that these patterns are not entirely global. They, they are stronger in the back of the brain than in the front of the brain. 
And third, there's a line of research, which is actually the line of research conducted by our interviewer, Anirudh Dadas, which combines optical imaging in monkeys, which therefore are more closer to humans, uh, with electrical recordings. And there the question is, is all the optical signal, all the bold signal, uh, related to neural activity? And I think there we, we kind of, the community falls out into two camps, and I'd be happy to discuss this if you, if you think it's appropriate. Sure, go ahead. So I, I think that... Even, even the authors of this paper, I think even Andrea and I differ in, in this. The question is whether all the activity that we see uh, related to hemo- hemodynamics is actually at, at the core uh, due to neural signals. And I believe so, uh, also based on uh, Neruda's results um, uh, that, that, that show very, very, very clear correlation between hemodynamic signals and neural activity once uh, certain processing steps are taken. But correctly, Andrea thinks more in terms of these uh, modulatory systems like the locus ceruleus, which can have an effect directly on blood vessels. And so I think the jury is out. There are these two camps, and maybe Aniruddha, you can correct me if I placed you in the wrong camp. But the jury is out, and we need new experiments to, to solve this. Which is the perfect segue into the final question. So where do you go from here? Well, I think uh, we need experiments that at the same time monitor neural activity with high resolution and hemodynamic activity with high resolution, and not just in one part of the brain, but throughout. And I think Elizabeth Hillman at Columbia is conducting these experiments right now with calcium indicators, and uh, I think she's going to give us the answer. She's going to tell us soon whether all of the bold signal is uh, at the bottom, uh, at the deep down, a neural signal or not. And so I'm, I'm, I think that these kind of experiments are what's needed. What does everybody else think? Yeah, I, I think I'm actually quite agnostic about it. I think that Elizabeth, I mean, she is doing something which would be one of the most powerful ways of addressing this issue. Uh, it is possible that the behaviorally related responses that we found are mediated through some neural responses that we could not measure electrically because of just the technical limitations of electrical recordings. And uh, so I'm, I'm agnostic. It is possible that it is driven uh, directly by neuromodulators the way Andrea thinks, or it is neurally motivated, but uh, it's an exciting period. Uh, I think we are probably on the brink of uh, actually getting the answer. I agree, absolutely agree. Yeah, I agree too. I mean, uh, I am probably more standing on one side of the camp, but I think we should be agnostic to the answer until we, we see convincing data going on one or the other direction. I'd like to thank our guests for participating in today's discussion of the article, Local and Global Contributions to Hemodynamic Activity in Mouse Cortex, part of the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. 